You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. So glad to have you here on the podcast this week. In Bible Study on Sunday, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 4 and talked about the way that knowing the outcome changes the way that we play the game. For a Christian life, knowing that Christ is victorious over sin and death and suffering changes everything. It changes our view of sin, it changes the way we treat one another in the church, and it also changes the way we react when persecution and suffering comes. To find out more about our Bible study here in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I think he could have put a few more things in that list. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, God, and I pray that you would speak to us through it tonight, that you would give us understanding and wisdom as we talk through this, Lord, and that your name would be glorified in this conversation. Father, help us to become the people that you want us to be, people who use the gifts that you have given us for your glory and pointing others to you in all that we do. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. So how many of you played sports? growing up okay did you ever play in a game where you were just so grossly unmatched with the other team that you were so far ahead there was no way that the other team was going to win or maybe it was the other way around (laughs) 
Right. So if you're on the winning side of a game like that, where there's just no way that the other team can come back, like by halftime, if you're playing basketball or whatever, this, you're already up by 50 points. There's no way they're coming back. It changes the way you play the game, right? You don't necessarily play with the same um, fear or urgency. And also, um, it makes you can have more joy. You just play the game just to have fun because it's less intense in a way. The coach may put in some second string people who never get to play and they can play and have fun and everybody loves it when they get to play. <laughs> that was you. And they love it when they get some play time. Yes. Um, and so when the outcome has been determined in that way, it changes the way that you play the game. And the same thing is true for us in the Christian life because the outcome has been determined. When we finished last week, we talked about how Jesus Christ lived through suffering and died in the suffering. But where is he now? He sits, this is the very last verse, 322. He has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is victorious over all of that, over sin, over death, over the grave. All of it is subject to him. But in a way, it is for us who are still here on this earth. He's in heaven, but we're still here. We're still playing the game. And the victory is ensured. We know that our team wins in the end. It's the beginning of the end, right? It is not yet the end. We are still having to fight these battles and um, deal with these kind of outlying enemies and all that sort of thing. Christ is victorious, but we are waiting for that final victory to take place. And in the meantime, then, it changes the way that we're supposed to live because he is victorious we're on his side, and therefore it changes everything for us. It changes in this passage. Peter talks about our view of sin and the way we treat one another in the church, how we act together, and then also how we deal with suffering, which who else is tired of talking about suffering? And can we move on to a happier subject, please? Um, but Peter is writing to encourage people who are in the midst of that. This is reality for them. And so... Um, He's saying it matters. What Christ has done matters, and this is why. So first he talks about um, our view of sin and how all of that should be different now, that, that we have known Christ and that we are thinking in the same way that he is thinking because that's what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in your homework this week, it asked you to mark all those occurrences of in the flesh, just so you would get an idea of how often Peter uses it here. And then um, it asked you to think about what Peter means by that. What does he mean by in the flesh? Yeah, human nature. But I think specific, what, what did you say, Veronica? Yeah. Yeah, specifically, he's talking about in your body, like in your body. So since Christ suffered in his body, arm, him, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the body has ceased from sin. So he's talking about that distinction between spiritual life and physical human life kind of thing. And um, he says to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So that leads to the question, what was Christ thinking? What are we supposed to arm ourselves with? And if we go back further in chapter 3 that we talked about last week, verses 17 through 18, this is that way of thinking. For it is better to suffer for doing good, 
If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So again, Peter here is talking about suffering for righteousness sake, choosing faithfulness, even though it leads to suffering, even if it might mean that in our bodies we suffer physical harm. Um, That means that we have made a break from sin in a way. That's what he's saying here. We talked about that a little while ago in our discussion time. It says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It doesn't mean that you will never ever sin again. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle with human fleshly desires or anything of that nature. It just means that if you are choosing to do right and to live faithfully in spite of consequences of potential suffering, then you are in that moment choosing the will of God and pleasing him over the easy way fleshly out. Does that make sense? So so that you're no longer being controlled by uh, self-preservation or selfish desires or what's easier or what feels right or what feels good. No, you're being controlled by the will of God because who chooses the path of suffering? Nobody. Nobody necessarily wants to walk down that road. And so Peter is saying that when we choose to do what's right, even if it could lead to suffering, then it demonstrates our reliance upon the Lord and our commitment to following his will over and above our own. We're more concerned with pleasing him and winning his approval than winning the approval of man. And isn't that what life is all about? I think that when we talk about all of these passages about suffering, because it's so hard for us in our comfortable lives necessarily to relate, um, then we can think that it doesn't really apply. You know, like there's not much here for us. But this lifestyle that he is describing of choosing to follow the will of the Lord and to please him instead of being a people pleaser, that does apply to all of us. And in some cases, it might lead to discomfort or pain, whether that's pain in relationships or uncomfortable situations around the lunch table at work or whatever it may be. He says that it's worth it. It's worth it because it's creating righteousness in us. So as to live for the rest of the time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he says then to go on to describe what these human passions look like, which, you know, I know that people think that the world today is so much worse than it has ever been. (laughs) But this list that he gives here is pretty bad. It's pretty um, disgusting if you think about it. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And he uses Gentiles as he has been in the whole letter to describe people who are unbelievers. It's not just people who aren't Jewish, but Gentiles are people who do not belong to the people of God. That's everybody else. There's the people of God, and then there's the Gentiles. And then he says they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Well, okay then. It's a pretty expansive list. And all you have to do, really, is turn on the TV or go to the movies or listen to people talk at the lunch table or whatever it may be to know that the world really isn't all that different now than it was then. Um, but if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you grew up in the church and you've always sort of followed the will of the Lord, then this may not be a part of your past. 
But Peter is talking to people who were new believers, remember? They, they had not necessarily grown up with these beliefs. And so these were people who maybe had participated in these sorts of things in the past because it was part of their normal everyday life. They were just living life the way everybody else around them was living life. This was normal. This is what the culture did. It's what our culture does too. I just think we're insulated from it in so many ways until you turn on the TV. And then you think, wow, is this real life? And it is. You have to watch the news, read the headlines. It's full of this kind of stuff. Watch a music video. It doesn't, it doesn't take much. But these were people who maybe had lived that sort of life in the past. Think about the other things Peter has said. Um, you know, you're no longer consumed by the passions of the flesh. You don't live in the futile ways of your forefathers. He's, he's encouraged them throughout the course of this letter to leave these sorts of things behind. And now he says that is over. It's done with. And, but then he goes on to talk about the people who they used to participate in these things with. Verse number four, with respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. What, are you too good to hang out with us now? You used to. Why don't you do these things with us anymore? Is there something wrong? Are you, ju- are you judging me? You can maybe see how that would go down in that context. They are carrying on as if nothing has changed, but you can't. You can't do that anymore. We leave those things behind because they're not fitting for the people of God. You're no longer one of them. You belong to the Lord. And it might come as a great shock to those who are accustomed to you being the life of the party that you cannot be the life of the party anymore, that your change may serve as quiet condemnation for their behavior, which is what you're feeling probably at work or what she's feeling (laughs) when she says, I'm so sorry, Dan, sorry. Not that you have ever come right out and said it, but she knows enough about you to know that you probably don't approve. With this, he's saying they malign you. So this is another one of those words that we don't use all that often. Um, it's, and it's another one that's used more like slander, hateful speech, insults, and much more to do with speaking than, you know, any kind of physical harmful effects. And, but then he goes on to say, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to have to stand up and, and give an account for their behavior. And then he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is one of those verses that kind of doesn't make sense when you first read it. But if you take a closer look, it starts to clear up. If you looked at your homework, she gave a little bit of instruction about these verses in particular and pointed out that at this point in time in church history, you know, Christ had died and resurrected and then ascended into heaven and left behind the young church. And they expected him to come back any day now, any day now, Jesus is coming. He's going to take us all home. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming. But he'd been gone long enough that some of those earliest believers had started to die. And then the people around them, the watching world, the Gentiles were saying, what was the point of believing in him? Didn't save you, did it? You still died. And Peter is saying, look, they may have died. You may have known a fellow believer who has died in the flesh, but their spirit lives on with God. 
And what he's saying is that we believers take the long view. Your unbelieving friends may not be able to see past the moment and they may not be able to look further than the next party or what is happening and what they want to do. But you have to take the long view and look past what's happening in the here and now and know that there are consequences for the choices that we make now. He says here that those who do not believe are going to give an account for what they do. And that's why we believe in the gospel, because we are either going to be judged someday according to our own righteousness or according to Jesus Christ. And I would much rather have his righteousness put before the Lord than mine. And this is the gospel. This is the heart of it. This is what it says that Christ, the righteous, going back to last week's passage, chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might present us to God on that day of judgment, when that day comes, so that he might present us free of guilt, spotless, pure as the driven snow. Death is going to come to all of us. That is not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is not that we will not suffer. It is not that we will not experience pain. It's not that we'll never die. The promise of the gospel is that those things will come, but they're not the end. They are not the end. Um, So however it may look to those on the outside looking in, they're wrong. Hold on to this hope um, that, that those of us who believe have not hoped in vain. There's that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and they were kind of struggling with the same thing. People had started to die and it didn't look good for the church. And he said, hey, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then why are you living this Christian life? And he says, if if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. It is not about this life only, but it's in the next one. And then he moves on in verse 7 to talk specifically about how then this knowledge affects our life in the church. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Whether Christ comes back tomorrow or whether he doesn't, either way, you will meet him soon. Whether you meet him in the spirit when your fleshly body dies or you meet him when he comes back. The end is at hand either way. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's the second time in this letter he has talked about being self-controlled and sober-minded. And it's also on a separate in two separate passages. Once he talked about being self-controlled and sober-minded, and then he also Um, when he was speaking to husbands, he was saying something about for the sake of your prayers. Do this for the sake of your prayers. And he wants us to be clear-headed and focused on what really matters. Keeping in mind that the time is short, that we don't know when our last day is going to be. We don't know when the end is coming. And that ought to then direct our actions and our thoughts. Though it seems like Jesus is tarrying, though it seems like he's taken forever to come back, the end of the physical life is approaching. And remember it. Remember that your days are short. And let that then be the fuel for your prayers and your actions. 
in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. He says to redeem the time. Redeem the time that you have been given. Don't waste it. Use it and use it well. And then he says, this is how you do it. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another well. It's interesting that he puts this first, I think. Um, But the reason that he gives is that love covers a multitude of sins. Those of us who have been married longer than a day know that love is a choice more than anything else. And it's a commitment, stubbornness some days, just to not give up. And um, to say, I, I have decided to love you. And what do our marriage vows say? For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, till death do us part. What if, radical thinking, we had that same sort of commitment to our fellow believers to love them no matter what, in sickness and health, for richer, for poor, till death do us part, to stick with one another, to give each other the same kind of grace that is necessary for a marriage to survive. Because goodness knows that I need grace in our marriage um, more often than not. The Bible, when it talks about the way that God has loved us, it says that God has set his love on us, that he chose to love us and he put his love on us. And how does God show his love for us? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us grace and he gave us mercy when we did not deserve it. And Peter is saying that this is the way that we are to love one another in a church, to set our love on each other, whether we want to or not, whether we feel like it. I think um, we give people the grace and the kindness that they don't deserve in the church because we know that sometime, like it may not be us this time, but next time it might be. We're going to be the ones who need the grace and the kindness because newsflash in the church, we're not perfect. As much as we like to pretend that we are sometimes, that we have our lives all together and that we never sin and we never mess up and our kids don't have attitudes or anything of that nature, we're not perfect and we do sin. But love covers a multitude of sins. What do we do for those that we love? We forgive them. We give them second chances. We don't write them off and say, I'm done with you. That's not what we do. We don't leave and go to another church because somebody disagreed with us there. No, that's not love. So he says, above all, keep loving one another. Keep, not just love each other once. Keep on loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's always easy. When, listen, I, when I think about hospitality, um, it brings to mind for me like an openness and an honesty about life. Um, but I think <laughs> we are so used to not letting people in. Like if somebody rings your doorbell, do you answer it? <laughs> Who's there? <laughs> let me let me see. And I know I'm here. Right. Did I brush my teeth this morning? No. Um, 
but hospitality, true hospitality, requires an openness and an honesty about, I know, about what our homes and our lives are really like. Like if we let somebody in, they might see our mess. Not just the physical mess, but the mess that is a 10-year-old's attitude or a mom's angry reaction. You know, they might see it if they come into the house, whereas we can be on good behavior otherwise. Um, however... It is absolutely necessary for us to function in the way that Christ has intended us to function. He has not meant for us to be individual, little people who only see each other once a week, whose lives never crisscross in other ways. The churches, we are meant to do life together, to help one another along so that when somebody is going through something, you don't have to ask how they are. You know. You know. You don't have to say, what, what can I do to help? Because you have seen what needs to happen. And when the church functions together in this way, it's a beautiful thing. When Dennis and I were newlyweds, we were members of a church in Iuka. And we were, I think I mentioned this in here before, maybe. We were the only members of that Sunday school class. Even though they were all our age and we were just like two years out of college, it's not that we were... They were that much older than us. Um, but we were the only ones in that class that didn't have children. So we were different than everyone already. But <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know how this got started. But our Sunday school teacher started um, just opening up his home, or their home, it was a couple, um, on Monday nights. And every Monday night, somebody would say, I'll bring taco meat. And then the rest of us would bring all the other stuff. And then we would just go. Over every Monday night, and at the time, I didn't realize what that what a sacrifice that must have been, and how hard that must have been for all of them because I didn't have kids. I did not know they had three. They had three. <laughs> but when I think back on those days and on how every Monday night we were all gathering together and changing other kids' diapers and disciplining one another's children—not my children because they weren't there yet—but we were doing life together and I have not experienced anything like that since. Now you can come over to my house on Monday nights if you want to, but you must bring something to eat. <laughs> Just know that that is, that's an open invitation, but no, um, recently in, in the past couple of years, there's been a book that came, I think it was just came out this past year. The gospel comes with a house key. Rosaria Butterfield has written it. I have not read it yet, but I've read, read excerpts from it. And um, I'm just intrigued by this idea of living out the gospel by inviting people into home. And she describes the situation where um, in their neighborhood they had befriended this guy across the street and their family had become friends with him. And then all of a sudden one day he was busted for having a meth lab in his basement. And, <laughs> and then the other neighbors were like, how did you not know this? You know, and in and, and the course of all that was going on in their neighborhood, um, they started inviting everybody over to their home every day, every day for dinner, every day. And um, she says, you know, sometimes people show up while she's still working on the kids' math homework. She said, but it's okay. Everybody knows how to set the table in the Butterfield home. Um, but they have been able to reach their neighbors with the gospel in a way that they would not have if they hadn't opened the doors of their home. She said after the meal, which they all gather for, um, her husband reads through a chapter of the Bible and they talk about it and they pray all together. She says sometimes people leave, sometimes they don't. Most of the time they don't. 
Um, but it's this beautiful story of how hospitality is changing a neighborhood. Okay, carry on. Do it without grumbling. Whose house are we having dinner at tomorrow? <laughs> yes. Although one of my children has something from six to seven, so you're welcome to come to my house. But if you're willing to babysit Kendall while I take Micah to her thing, for sure. Come on over. Um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Rather than keeping our gifts to ourselves, our spiritual gifts. You know, this is a not an exhaustive list by any means. In your homework, there were a couple of other passages to look up that talks about the different spiritual gifts. We could add things to it. Um, but God has uniquely gifted each one of us, and he has not meant for us to keep those gifts to ourselves, but to share it, to share it. Like I said earlier, God does not give unnecessary gifts. If he has gifted you, if he has given you a talent or a passion or a drive or you know, an ability that you look around you and nobody else has, then he has given it to you for a reason and he intends for you to use it. This is just a short list of some of the ways that God has gifted his people. It's certainly not all of them. And so... The implication then for us is that we need to be asking ourselves how God has gifted us because he hasn't left you out. (laughs) It's not like he's like, "Mm, I'm going to give her a gift and her a gift and her a gift, but not her. No, God doesn't do that. He has gifted each one of us uniquely in ways that fit us and our personality and the places that he has put us in. And so he has, if he has put you in a place, he intends for you to be of service there for the edification of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. Together, we're strong, but on our own, not so much. So that's the question here is, are you using your gifts? your unique giftings for the glory of God. And if not, what is stopping you? Whether it's time or, you know, money or a busy schedule, whatever it is, fear, legitimate, any of those things, what's stopping you? And, and what changes need to happen for you to step up and start using that gift for the glory of God. Because the truth is that if you are not using your gifts, then the church is suffering. The church is missing out. So um, don't be that person. Don't be selfish. Sure. Um, Share your gifts that God has given you. This is the way it is with all of the blessings that God gives. When he calls Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 11, and he says, go and I will make of you a great nation and I will give you great blessings. And then he carries on and he says, so that you may be a blessing. When God blesses, it is so that we can bless others with that blessing. Whether it is a material blessing or a spiritual one, God intends for us to share it with one another. And then finally, in this last section, he turns again to suffering as a Christian and and how knowing the outcome changes our experience of suffering in this life. 
Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This language here of fiery trial and testing, it makes me think back to chapter 1. Let me get all the way back there to our second week when we talked about it. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that what? The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is that same kind of language of purification and strengthening that he was talking about in chapter 1. That suffering sometimes produces in us um, strength and purity that could not be achieved by any other means. And it speaks, too, of God's purpose in it, which is a hard pill to swallow sometimes, that the suffering we are experiencing is part of God's sovereign plan. But that's what he's getting at here in this whole section. You have to take it all together when he's talking about with judgment beginning in the household of God. Like if in this earthly life, we who believe are experiencing this kind of purification process and suffering in our bodies here on this earth, what's it going to be like for those who don't believe? And that's the big picture here. He says, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed who rejoices when you when bad things happen y'all i have a bad day and i'm like oh it's the worst day ever and none of what happens on my worst day ever really compare to true suffering and so um Peter is saying that we rejoice not because of the suffering, but in the suffering. Not because it's a, this great, wonderful thing happened, but because of the joyful truth that it points to. And the joyful truth that it points to is Christ's suffering on our behalf. It is pointing to him and what he has done for us and that um, he sits in victory over all of this temporary stuff. We aren't alone in the suffering. He also points that out because what does he say here in verse 14? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. We've talked about that multiple times throughout this. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. And that is the promise that in our pain, in our suffering, God is with us. We are not alone. The Holy Spirit is there. And what does the Holy Spirit do within us? It strengthens us. It empowers us. It enables us to endure and to carry on to the very end so that God might be glorified. The Holy Spirit allows us to endure the worst possible kinds of suffering with grace and dignity in ways that are not humanly possible. We, we can't do that in our own strength, but with the strength of God and the Holy Spirit working through us, we can. There is honor in that, but there is not honor if we suffer because of our own wrongdoing. That's what he says here. If anyone suffers, wait, hold on. 
Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's don't suffer for doing bad things. There is no honor, no glory there. So it's not all kinds of suffering that he's commending here. He's mentioned that more than once in the letter. There's no honor in doing wrong and then having to deal with the consequences. Nobody's going to feel bad for you (laughs) for that. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about suffering as a Christian for Christianly conduct, for doing the right thing. And then verse 17, he wraps it all up. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How we conduct ourselves in this life matters because the end is at hand. Peter wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago. And the end was at hand for them then. And the end is at hand for us now. The end is at hand. Judgment is coming. We will give an account, and so will they, for what we have done. But no matter what happens to our physical bodies, no matter what kind of suffering we may endure, even if we should suffer like Jesus did to the point of death, um, we know that our souls are safe with God. Did you notice that's what he said here? Verse 19, let those who suffer and trust their souls, not your physical health, not your body, not your well-being on this earth, your soul. Our souls are safe with him to a faithful creator while doing good. He is our maker, our redeemer, our creator, our savior. And we can trust him with our souls. And while we are trusting, that is what enables us to do good, to cease from sin and to pursue the will of God above all else, even if suffering should come, because we trust him, because we trust him. And that's what this is all about, whether we ever face that sort of suffering or not. um, It will reveal, it'll reveal the truth of our faith, whether or not you truly trust the Lord or not. So let us be found faithful as people who trust the Lord and carry on doing good, no matter the cost. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for your goodness to us, Father. God, I pray that you would grant us all that is necessary for us to endure, Lord, that you would send your spirit to fill us and empower us to live this impossible life, God, that you would work in us and through us and help us to be faithful no matter the cost, Lord. God, I pray that you would, um, Lord, that you would show us the ways that we can serve you, that we would be people who glorify you in all that we do in the church, in the world, Lord, that we would point to you, that we would use our gifts in your service, and that we would be people who build one another up and who love one another earnestly. Lord, that your glory would be known here. And it's in your name that we pray these things.